Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. The Platform Sutra of Wei Neng Meditation, Wisdom, and One Practice Samadhi Good friends, this Dharma teaching of mine is based on meditation and wisdom. But don't make the mistake of thinking that meditation and wisdom are separate. Meditation and wisdom are of one essence and not two. Meditation is the body of wisdom, and wisdom is the function of meditation. Wherever you find wisdom, you find meditation. And wherever you find meditation, you find wisdom. Good friends, what this means is that meditation and wisdom are the same. The cultivation of self-awareness does not involve argument. People who argue about which comes first and which comes second only confuse themselves. Unless you put an end to right and wrong, you will give rise to self-existent dharmas and you will never be free of the four states. One practice samadhi means always practicing with a straightforward mind, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. The Vimalakirti Sutra says, a straightforward mind is the place of enlightenment. And a straightforward mind is the pure land. Don't practice hypocrisy with your mind while you talk about being straightforward with your mouth. If you speak about one practice samadhi with your mouth, but you don't practice with a straightforward mind, you're no disciple of the Buddha. Simply practice with a straightforward mind and don't become attached to any dharma. This is what is meant by one practice samadhi. Deluded people who cling to the external attributes of a dharma get hold of one practice samadhi and say that just sitting motionless, eliminating delusions and not thinking thoughts is one practice samadhi. But if that were true, a dharma like that would be the same as lifelessness and would constitute an obstruction of the way. The way has to flow freely. Why block it up? The way flows freely when the mind doesn't dwell on any dharma. Once it dwells on something, it becomes bound. Good friends, what are meditation and wisdom like? They're like a lamp and it's light. When there's a lamp, there's light. When there's no lamp, there's no light. The lamp is the light's body and light is the lamp's function. They have two names, but not two bodies. This teaching concerning meditation and wisdom is also like this.
Good afternoon. So this Rohatsu one-day session has just passed into the afternoon. We're just a little bit past noon right now. How's everyone feeling? Luminous? I hope so. A little joyful? I hope so. So I'm giving everyone a little break from Bodhidharma today. Um, I'm not finished with Bodhidharma, but a little break is good now and then. Instead, we'll take Eno in Chinese, Wineng. In Japanese, as we chant our lineage, Eno Daikon Zenji. Eno was born in February 638 and died August 28, 713. So to put this into some kind of historical context, Bodhidharma's dates are thought to be, as far as his time in China, somewhere around the end of the fifth century. And he probably uh, passed away sometime early in the sixth century, somewhere around 540 or so but those dates are very tentative. There is quite a lot of debate about exactly what his dates are. So Eno is roughly 100 years, born roughly 100 years after Bodhidharma's death. And to give you an idea of what was happening in the world at the time, uh, Muhammad, the prophet and founder of Islam, had died only six years before his birth in 632. So the Islamic religion was rapidly spreading out from Arabia. In Europe, the Roman Empire had fallen a couple of hundred years before the Western Roman Empire the Eastern Empire had been conquered, not by Islam, by, but by another invader who changed the official language from Latin to Greek. And in China, it was the end of one dynasty, the Sui dynasty, and the start of the Tang dynasty, which anyone who studies Buddhist history and Zen history is very familiar with many of the great masters were in the Tang dynasty. That change of dynasties was very important to Wineng because Wineng's father was a government official. And when the dynasties changed, he lost his job he was fortunate not to lose his life. They took their dynastic changes very seriously and he was banished 
sent 1,500 miles away into the southern regions of China, which were considered uncivilized, barbaric. Having lost his job, of course, he was very poor, and he died very soon after Wei Neng's birth. And so Wei Neng grew up the son of a single mother of a officially disgraced family. So having no connections, having no financial support, and he was as poor as poor can be. If Hafiz was the lowest rung on the social ladder, Wineng was below the lowest rung. He was the ground that the ladder was resting on. Absolutely destitute. And he grew up not just poor, but illiterate. To support his mother, he would gather firewood and sell the firewood in the marketplace. He would carry the firewood into town. And this went on for quite some time. He grew to be an adult. And it's thought he was probably in his early 30s when he happened to hear someone in the village reciting a sutra. One can assume it was a traveling monk reciting a sutra. And Eno was overcome with joy at hearing the sutra and asked the man, tell me, what is this thing you're reciting? And the man said, this is the Diamond Sutra of Perfect Wisdom. And as Eno heard the sutra being recited, his Dharma eye was opened. If Bodhidharma is correct, it's only one in a million people who may attain enlightenment without diligent work and study with a good teacher. But apparently Eno, the destitute firewood gatherer living in the furthest backwater of the Chinese empire, was one of those in a million. He said, when I heard those words, my mind was open and I clearly saw my nature. So, of course, he asked the monk, well, where did you hear this wonderful text that you're reciting? And he explained that it was in the Eastern Meditation Monastery under Master Hung Zhen, or 
as we know him, Gunin Daiman Zenji. And so Eno made arrangements. He somehow managed to convince someone to sponsor him to make the trip to the Eastern Mountain Monastery. Not that he wanted money for himself, but he felt he had to take care of his mother. And so someone knowing that he was going off to study Buddhism, gave him 20 pieces of silver to take care of his mother. And that enabled Eno to make this journey. So his very first pilgrimage was to this monastery. When he got to the monastery, he had an interesting encounter with Gunin Daiman Zenji. And this is the uh, translation by Red Pine, which is a very good and wonderful translation. He uses uh, Chinese names, so I will follow his uh, translation. Master Hongjin asked me, where are you from? And what exactly do you hope to get from me by coming to this mountain to pay your respects? I answered, your disciple is from Lingnan, a commoner of Shinchu. The reason I came all this way to pay my respects is I want to be a Buddha. I don't want anything else. The master scoffed, but you're from Lingnan. That would be like saying, well, you're from the Bayou. You're from, you're from Nowheresville. You're from Lingnan and a jungle rat as well. How can you possibly be a Buddha? I replied, people come from the north or south, not their Buddha nature. The lives of this jungle rat and the masters aren't the same. But how can our Buddha nature differ? The master was about to say something to me. But when he saw his attendants standing there, He didn't say anything else and sent me to join the Sangha workforce. A novice then led me to the milling room where I peddled a millstone for more than eight months. The story tells you a lot about Eno, about Gunin, and also about the nature of monastic communities at that time. We tend to think of monasteries as uh, places of harmony and everyone loves everybody and everyone gets along and there's no jealousy and there's no infighting 
And that may be true in some monasteries. It might be true in this monastery. I haven't really lived here recently. But it was not true in the monasteries of the Sui and then Tang dynasty. There were political factions. There was infighting. There was ambition. And although Gunin, in this exchange, could sense that Eno was something special, not your ordinary person, jungle rat or no, he was somebody who already knew something, already could see something, already had a clear understanding, an understanding which is not commonly encountered. But fearing that if he continued to ask this lay commoner, this threadbare aborigine, that the monks around would make his life miserable, that is, Eno's life miserable, because they would sense that he was somehow the master's favorite. And so rather than risk that, he was told, go, go to work. When the time is right, Gunin's thought to himself, when the time is right, this one will mature. This one will have something more to say, but not right now. And so for eight months, Eno worked in the mill, running a treadstone, rather dangerous and grueling work. Then, as Guinan thought that perhaps Guinan, that is, uh, thought that his time to depart the world was approaching, and he wanted to make plans for a successor, he announced a contest. The contest was that the monks should compose a gatha, a poem, expressing their understanding of this matter. None of the monks were very enthusiastic about this contest. First of all, most of them didn't have much of an understanding of this matter. Secondly, none of them felt that they were poets. Thirdly, 
they all thought, well, the head monk, the precept master, he can do it. He's the, he's the only person who's really capable of succeeding the master anyway. So we'll leave it to him. The precept master wasn't crazy about the idea. Not at all. He wasn't very happy about the idea at all. He knew that he had to do it. Nobody else was going to do it. He knew everybody in the monastery and everybody was looking to him. But he was so unsure of himself. So he really fought this. He really, really just had the hardest time convincing himself that he should do it. It's not that he was ambitious. It's that he felt that it was his duty to do this. The venerable Shen Shu thought, no one's going to submit a mind poem, a gatha, because I'm their precept instructor. But if I don't submit one, how can the patriarch tell if the understanding of my mind is deep or not? It would be right for me to show the patriarch a poem that reveals my understanding, as long as what I wanted was the Dharma. But it would be wrong, as long as what I wanted was the patriarchship. I would be no better than a fool who thinks he can usurp the position of a sage. But if I don't submit a gatha, I'll never receive the Dharma. As he considered this, he kept thinking, what a predicament. <laughs> the poor guy. He doesn't really want to do this, but he feels he must do this. It's really, it's, it's really troubling him. Finally, at midnight, without letting anyone know, he went to write his poem on the middle of the South Corridor wall in hopes of obtaining the robe and the Dharma. When the patriarch sees my gatha and reads these words, he thought, if he comes to find me, the moment I see him, I will tell him I wrote it. But when he sees my gatha, if he says it's not good enough, it will be because I'm deluded and the obstruction of my past karma is too great and I'm not ready to receive the Dharma. The master's mind is impossible to fathom. I may as well stop worrying about it. So the venerable Shen Shu held up a lantern and wrote his gatha on the middle of the South Corridor wall at midnight, and no one saw him. His gatha went, The body is a Bodhi tree. The mind is like a standing mirror. Always try to keep it clean. Don't let it gather dust. Which, as far as conventional Buddhist teaching at the time goes, was not a bad poem. Certainly not inspired, but not bad. 
it showed a conventional understanding of Buddhist practice. It didn't really show the depth of Zen understanding. And when the fifth patriarch saw it, he said, well, if people read this and understand it, they won't regress. Which is somewhat like damning with faint praise. And all of the monks went around saying, oh, the fifth patriarch thinks this is just wonderful. Not exactly. And when the fifth patriarch asked Shen Shu, did you write the Gatha? If you did, you're ready to receive my Dharma. He didn't say anything about the robe and the bowl. He just said, you're ready to be taught. You're ready to receive my dharma. Shenshu said, I'm guilty. It's true. I was the one who wrote it. But I don't dare ask for the patriarchship. Only for the master's consideration as to whether your disciple has acquired enough wisdom to understand what is truly important or not. So Shen Shu is in no way the bad guy here. He's doing his best. He has a good attitude. And he's ready for instruction. He's just not ready to be the successor. The fifth ancestor said, This gatha of yours shows your understanding has only reached the threshold and has not yet entered inside. If ordinary people use your gatha in their practice, they won't regress. But someone with such an understanding who seeks perfect enlightenment will never realize it. If you want to enter the door, you have to see your nature. Go back and think about this for a few days and write me another gatha. If you're able to enter the door and see your nature, I will give you the robe and the Dharma. Shen Shu left, but after several days, he still hadn't written anything. So all the other monks are, are convinced that Shen Shu is the next patriarch. They're convinced that he is the anointed one, the successor. And they go around reciting the Gatha. Eno hears someone reciting the gatha and asks, what's what's that you're you're saying? And he's told the whole story. And Eno realizes right away, uh, not bad, but he doesn't quite get it, does he? And so... He asks somebody, since he's illiterate, 
he asks someone to write down a verse for him. And he asks that this be written. Bodhi doesn't have any trees. This mirror doesn't have a stand. Our Buddha nature is forever pure. Where do you get this dust? Then he composed another one. The mind is the Bodhi tree. The body is the mirror's stand. The mirror itself is so clean, dust has no place to land. And when the fifth patriarch saw this gatha, he realized right away that it could only be one person in the monastery who had written it, a jungle rat. And so at night, he comes to Eno's room. And he explains the Diamond Sutra to him. Eno says, as soon as I heard the words, I understood. And that night, unknown to anyone, I received the Dharma as he transmitted the robe and the direct teaching to me. And I became the sixth patriarch. The robe is an embodiment of trust that has been handed down from one generation to the next but the Dharma is transmitted from mind to mind and must be realized by people themselves. Then the fifth patriarch said, We Neng, since ancient times, the lives of those to whom this teaching has been transmitted have hung by a thread. If you stay here, someone will harm you. You must leave at once. The stories of the ancestors, starting with Shakyamuni Buddha, are filled with tales of people being threatened, people in danger. Shakyamuni Buddha was poisoned by a member of the Sangha who wanted his position. Not just poison, but uh, the same person sent a, a, a bull elephant to trample him to death. And of course, the Buddha simply looked at the elephant and raised his hand and the elephant calmed down right away. But these stories appear often in the history. And in this case, the monastery had perhaps a thousand monks. It was a place of great economic activity. It was like a town. It was not just 
a place that people went to and stayed for a while and then left. People would spend year after year there and they became very much attached to all facets of the monastery. The economic activity, the social activity, and for a lay person, and not just a lay person, but a southerner considered a barbarian, an illiterate, to be given a position of such authority. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. And absolutely unsupportable. So Eno's life was, in fact, in danger. And Eno had to leave. He fled. He went far away. And he was chased. He was chased by, it said, hundreds of monks. But he was always one step ahead. And finally, after a long journey, only one monk remained. He was in his previous life before becoming a monk, a general, a strong and fierce man of great authority, great power, great physical strength, but who had become a monk because he also had a serious nature and wanted, after all of his power and influence, to receive the Dharma. He alone was able to catch up to Eno. And the story is told in case 23 of the Mumun Khan, which I'll get to in just a moment. But first, some refreshment. The sixth patriarch was pursued by the monk Myo as far as Taiyu Mountain. The patriarch who, of course, at this time is not what we think of as a patriarch. He is a destitute, illiterate, probably very poorly dressed, uh, probably emaciated from having traveled so far and so fast, keeping ahead of these people. but with the presence of mind of one who has already seen his own nature. The patriarch, seeing Mio coming, laid the robe and bowl on a rock and said, This robe represents the faith. 
It should not be fought over. If you want to take it away, take it now. Mio tried to move it, but it was as heavy as a mountain and would not budge. Faltering and trembling, he cried out, I came for the Dharma, not for the robe. I beg you, please give me your instruction. The patriarch said, Think neither good nor evil. At this very moment, where is the original self of the monk Myo? At these words, Myo was directly illuminated. His whole body was covered with sweat. He wept and bowed, saying, Besides the secret words and the secret meaning you have just now revealed to me, is there anything else deeper still? Eno said, what I have told you is no secret at all. When you look into your own true self, whatever is deeper is found right there. Myo said, I was with the monks under Obai, that is Gunin, for many years, but could not realize my true self. But now, receiving your instruction, I know it is like a man drinking water and knowing whether it is cold or warm. My lay brother, you are now my teacher. Eno said, if you say so, but let us both call Obai our teacher. Be mindful to treasure and hold fast to what you have attained. So this is the background for Eno, which brings us to the text. A lot of what is contained in the text that I read is illustrated by the story of Eno's life, by the gatha he wrote, by the experience with Mio on the mountain. Good friends, this Dharma teaching of mine is based on meditation and wisdom. But don't make the mistake of thinking that meditation and wisdom are separate. Meditation and wisdom are of one essence and not two. Meditation is the body of wisdom and wisdom is the function of meditation. Remember the gatha he wrote, the mind is the Bodhi tree. The body is the mirror's stand. The mirror itself is so clean, dust has no place to land. 
the nearer is the great mirror wisdom. The mirror is suchness itself. The body, as we sit in meditation, is just a stand, it's just a place from which to observe the great mirror wisdom. The mind is the Bodhi tree. The Bodhi tree, of course, the tree under which Shakyamuni attained his true nature, saw his own original face. The mirror itself is so clean, dust has no place to land. Meditation and wisdom. One the body, the other the function. Wherever you find wisdom, you find meditation. And wherever you find meditation, you find wisdom. The cultivation of self-awareness does not involve argument. Here he's, the sentence has two points. The first is you can argue, well, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, meditation or wisdom? He's saying it doesn't matter. They're really the same thing. But the other point is, and this is perhaps more important, argument, quarreling, aversion, disputation. We're all really, really good at that. We do it all the time. Yesterday in Chigan Roshi's wonderful Taisho, he was talking about words and opinions. And he asked, who here believes in spirits? And a few hands went up and a lot of hands didn't. I was sitting there thinking, well, if you don't believe in spirits, what are you doing a spiritual practice for? And then I thought, well, that's just another opinion. We love opinions. We love words. Words are wonderful. Words are our, our go-to. They are our comfort. They are our major way of communicating. 
They are our major way of understanding and they are also our major obstruction. With words, with arguments, we can block almost anything, including insight. We argue with ourselves all the time. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. What a mistake. Oh, I would be much more comfortable if I just did this move a little bit here. We do it during meditation. We do it all the time, really. That's kind of our thing. That's what we do. We're constantly commenting on the world and on our relationship with it, which is almost always an unsatisfactory relationship with it. I'm sure you've had the argument while doing Zazen of, well, I'm doing this wrong. I don't know what I'm doing here. What a waste of time. The cultivation of self-awareness does not involve argument. Somehow or another, you have to, perhaps you have to go through every argument possible until you exhaust all your arguments and you exhaust all your words. And finally you say, oh, you know, I'm just a, a raw lump of red meat sitting here suffering and something's got to give and you just stop with the words and you stop with the arguments and you say, okay, if that's what it takes, I'll be a lump of raw red meat. And then meditation begins. I wish it could be somewhere else. You know, I wish we could just sit down and, and right away, ah, yes, meditation and wisdom are the same thing. Here I am meditating and I'm really, I'm really wise now. But somehow, even though this is what Eno says and it's true, it certainly doesn't seem that way. We will argue about it and argue about it and argue about it. People who argue about which comes first and which comes second only confuse themselves. People who argue about right and wrong, this and that, hot and cold, comfortable, uncomfortable, waste of time, good use of time, whatever you're arguing about, you only confuse things. Unless you put an end to right and wrong, 
you will give rise to self-existent dharmas and you'll never be free of the four stages. Now, unfortunately, this is a little bit of Buddhist jargon. Self-existent dharmas. One way of saying self-existent dharmas is you're making a mountain out of a molehill and a molehill out of nothing at all. There's nothing there to obstruct you if you just stop arguing. But you'll continue to argue, and every argument is just a confirmation of dukkha. A confirmation that, yes, I exist, and this is this, and that is that, and and oh, it hurts, and, and just stop. Just stop already. And you'll never be free of the four stages. Red Pine explains the four stages as being self, being, a life, a soul. Although he also says that in the uh, Lankavatara Sutra, uh, the four stages are something else, and I forgot to write it down, and it doesn't matter. Just more jargon. <laughs> it's making a mountain out of a molehill and making a molehill out of thin air. One practice samadhi means always practicing with a straightforward mind. Whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. The Vimalakirti Sutra says a straightforward mind is the place of enlightenment. And a straightforward mind is the pure land. Don't practice hypocrisy with your mind while you talk about being straightforward with your mouth. If you speak about one practice samadhi with your mouth, but don't practice with a straightforward mind, you're no disciple of the Buddha. Simply practice with a straightforward mind and don't become attached to any Dharma. This is what is meant by one practice samadhi. So one practice samadhi, whether sitting in full lotus position, sitting on a seiza bench, sitting in a chair, or walking, or standing, or lying down, or chopping carrots, or gathering firewood, or cleaning toilets. One practice samadhi, just being with it, with a straightforward mind. No argument. No, if this is this and that and that and 
Just do it. Just be with it. A straightforward mind, nothing devious, nothing hidden. The precepts are meant to facilitate having a straightforward mind. It's hard to have a straightforward mind and to lie or gossip, talk behind someone's back, or steal, or do any of the other unethical things that the precepts warn us about. They aren't meant to be an imposition. They're meant as a sort of guide rail to keep us from wandering off the straightforward mind. The monastic order, the rules of the monastery, the hierarchy of the monastery, the officers' roles are meant to facilitate the one the straightforward mind. You do what is necessary when it's necessary. And it's well-defined. It's a wonderful way of living and a wonderful way of practicing. It's one of the great gifts of being in a monastic setting. Things are so much less messy than in the so-called real world, where there are so many decisions to be made from moment to moment. Here, there are very few decisions to be made. You simply have to know the job that has been assigned to you and to do it without argument, to do it with a straightforward mind with an open heart. But what occurs in the monastic setting is that because everything is so well defined, the chaos comes from within. There's no outer chaos to deal with. The chaos is all in here. Which again is one of the great gifts of the monastic existence. There's no hiding from what's in here. We can hide for years and years 
behind all of the daily decisions, all of the daily tasks that we invent for ourselves. Here, we're not inventing daily tasks for ourselves. And there's no place to hide. You're straightforward or you're not, and you know it right away. You can kind of slide by on the outside. You can hide from yourself. Here, there's no hiding. That makes it very hard. But it makes it a wonderful place to look into your heart because there are no distractions. Deluded people who cling to the external attributes of a dharma get hold of one practice samadhi and say that just sitting motionless, eliminating delusions and not thinking thoughts is one practice samadhi. But if that were true, a dharma like that would be the same as lifelessness and would constitute an obstruction of the way. The way has to flow freely. Why block it up? In Chinese medicine, it's thought that illness is the result of a blockage of qi or qi. Energy has to flow naturally in the body. And when energy is obstructed in some way or another, the body becomes ill. The Dharma is very much like this. When one has straightforward mind, when one has openness and stops arguing, the Dharma flows naturally. When one looks directly into one's nature, and not into all of the accessories, the Dharma flows naturally. It has to flow freely. Why block it up? The way flows freely when the mind doesn't dwell on any dharma. Dwelling on a dharma is just another form of 
argument. Asserting this and not that. It has to be like this. Once it dwells on something, it becomes bound. And just like chi obstructing in the body, illness results. To be as natural as possible and to not let the mind cling to anything allows the Dharma to flow. Good friends, water meditation and wisdom like, they're like a lamp and it's light. When there's a lamp, there's light. When there's no lamp, there's no light. The lamp is the light's body and light is the lamp's function. They have two names, but not two bodies. This teaching concerning meditation and wisdom is also like this. And really I could go on for a long, long time, but I've already gone on for a long, long time. And everybody must be tired of hearing me talk by now. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.